Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make paths straight for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the gospel of our Lord. I think I'd like to start by saying, well, Merry Christmas to you, John the Baptizer. Why does John have to threaten our Christmas like that? I would say, as I begin, that the truth is, of our four gospel stories, only two of them mention the birth story of Christ. Um, But all four of them mention John the Baptizer and his sort of teeing up the ministry of Jesus, which tells us something. Our gospel writers all saw uh, the the ministry of John, the teaching of John, the message of John, this enigmatic character that we know as John the Baptizer. They they saw him as so crucial to the story that he could not be uh, dismissed, erased, or excluded. And here's what our gospels are doing. They're setting up for us this idea that to understand what Jesus taught 
and to understand how Jesus lived, it requires preparation, preparation on our part, if we're going to really understand it and if we're also going to have a shot at living it out. And what John saw in his time is connected to our time. What John saw is two currents. One current that was overwhelming, that was strong, that had such a ferocious force in the world. It was a current that pulled the world forward, and it was rooted in this, protecting and advancing one's own ego. Protecting and advancing one's own ego. He saw that the world was swept up by this, that the empire in which they were under occupation was governed by it, and that everyone sort of took their cues with a sort of trickle-down effect of it. John sees this current, and in the face of it, he becomes a countercultural voice. Uh, he wasn't very popular because of this. Eventually, he was beheaded, although he was also beloved. But he had this message that was going against the grain. It was swimming upstream. It was going against the current. And it was kind of a thorn in people's sides. And I think sometimes, frankly, we, we're in this Advent season preparing for Christmas, and uh, we're trying to feel all the good feels. And then we get a voice like this, and it can kind of be a thorn in our side. It, it poses difficult questions to us, his voice. Because of the merits of the current system, the current, you know, current, as we've put it, it, it the merits seem, you know, uh, intrinsically obvious. Um, of course we should protect ourselves. Of course we should advance ourselves. It often goes unseen and uncritiqued. And so society as a whole, generation after generation after generation, is swept up by its allure and by its promise. But John sees the current, and he cuts to the heart of it, so to speak. T to quote our gospel text and the words that he uses with the crowd, the, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And he invites us all to ask one question. What fruit is coming from the tree of our lives? What fruit is coming from the tree of our ego? The ways that we try to protect it and the ways that we are going about advancing it. Now John sets his targets on a number of things here. Uh, and I'm going I'm to actually pair Matthew's version of this with Luke's to get a full range of what John is going after. All right. John is going after religious identity and how ego works there. He's going after uh, economic uh, identity and how our egos at work there. And he's also going after our ethnic identities and the way our egos are attached there. Economic uh, or religious and ethnic is, is clear and it's at the, the surface of our story. He tells this group of people that he looks to in the wilderness by this river. He says, you find comfort, you find protection, you find a sense of purpose and meaning in your identity as a child of Abraham. But then he undercuts it. And he says, you know, if God wanted, God could raise up rocks who were also descendants of Abraham. Um, why would John undercut their identity like that? Why would he look at their religious ethnic identity and say, don't put your stock in that. Like, don't find your comfort there. There really is no security blanket in that. Why would John do that? I think part of the reason is John knew as someone who was within that community and saw the dysfunction of that community, that that narrative and that way of thinking about identity wasn't working. 
that it was actually creating problems. It was doing damage. It was creating competition and rivalry where the calling of his people was one of love and blessing and generosity. It was the people were more and more governed by a scarcity mindset rather than a mindset of abundance. They held tightly to what they, held, what they owned and what they had and protected it fiercely rather than holding it loosely and offering it freely. John saw that uh, the people of Israel were at a crisis where their calling wasn't being matched with their lifestyles. And he thought this was a big problem. And so he undercuts their sense of religious and ethnic security blanket because he says there's actually something else that we need to be rooted in other than that in order to advance our calling as human beings in this world. If you want to know what your purpose is, if you want to know how to live in this world, you're not going to find it by just taking comfort and security in your religious and ethnic identity. And he'll go on in Luke's gospel to set other targets. Um, the, Luke tells us that there are other people there, tax collectors, were at this river in the wilderness. And tax collectors, as we've talked about frequently throughout the years as a, our, our years as a church and my readings of the, of the gospels, tax collectors were on the fringe of society. They were looked at as traitors. They were one of the people, but they were tied to a sort of mafia-esque broker system that paid off the empire its taxes and then collected whatever it wanted. And the pressure was so much on the people that they grew to despise these, this trade and this class. And our story tells us even the tax collectors were coming out to the wilderness, intrigued by John's invitation, and they were asking this one simple question. So what should we do? It's a question I'm sure you're asking as you consider the invitation of John during the season of Advent. So what are we supposed to do with this? And John didn't just have uh, platitudes that he shot at them. Uh, he didn't put on preacher voice and just make them feel bad. He actually had very concrete proposals in hand. When the tax collectors ask, what should we do? Luke tells us, John responds in this way. Don't collect any more money than you're required to. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. But it would have been a piercing critique and very difficult for a tax collector whose ego was wrapped up in not only the occupation and the sense of us against them, but also the, the economic payoff of that role. Simple, but not easy. Another group shows up here, and they're soldiers. Soldiers uh, working probably for the Roman Empire and also likely on contract. And when John sees these people and they ask that same question, what should we do? John has an answer for them. He says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. So again, John has vision for this particular people. You want to know what to do? The ax is laid at the tree. You sense an invitation for a different way, a different imagination, a different way of being in the world. What do I actually do? He had some concrete advice for them. And I think he invites us to ask that same question during the season of Advent. The question of what should we do? What fruit do we see from the trees of our lives? And what reform is needed at this moment in our story? I wonder who John the Baptist would target in our society. What forms of ego or identity protection exists now? 
What are the systems or the patterns of ego advancement in our time? I, I, I do think it's important to pause and just like, let's pay attention to where we are right now. Um, we live in a moment where there is kind of a religious and spiritual vacuum. I mean, this began partly through the Enlightenment, but it also began with the Industrial Revolution. People were moved away from their families as major identity units um, and their local communities as major places within which they found meaning and significance and belonging to now they were moving towards cities. And they lived in obscurity, they lived in isolation, and they had to forge a new path. And at the same time, the sort of uh, critic's lens is put on through science and reason and the, the old stories that were passed on from generation to generation that infused communities with meaning and purpose were beginning to be called into question or cast under a shadow of doubt. And one of the things that we've seen is that the human heart runs to things. It is a religious entity. It, it just grasps on things so tightly for meaning and significance and security. Uh, there's no escaping that. And so when religion in general was sort of fading in the, in the social landscape in Western society, other things began to fill it. And we find ourselves now in a time of you know, capitalist consumerism. And I'm not here to throw that under the bus, but I do want us to, to see that in the absence of a, a robust spirituality and religious identity, we are now attaching ourselves to what we spend and how we spend it, to uh, the, th the ways that we can curate an identity through our spending power. What we wear, where we live, how we live, all of the things that give us a sense of protection or perhaps advance us in the eyes of the, the groups that we care about, our energy is going in that direction now. It's channeled hardly in that direction. And when I imagine John, which is partly my job, is to imagine what would John be saying now? How would John be talking now? And frankly, it's all of our jobs to consider that question. I think a huge part of what he would touch on is the way that we're addicted to consumption as an identity badge. The way our egos need what we spend our money on. And so on the second week of Advent, in the week of peace, we're in this process of the Advent conspiracy where last week we talked about worshiping fully, and this week I want to look at this idea of what it would mean to spend less to sort of detox from all the ways that we get the ego shot and to ask ourselves, what are we left with when we strip ourselves of things that we think are so important for our identity? John basically had one message, and it was this, repent. Thanks, John. Repent. And uh, repent means uh, to just like change your whole way of doing things. So thanks again, John. What are we supposed to do? Just, uh, just change your whole, just change everything. It's fine. John knew that it is a radical shift to lean into uh, the way of God's love, uh, to root our identities, our egos, in something beyond uh, who we belong to, uh, what sense of meaning we have, what sense of material security we have. It requires a radical shift in imagination. And that's what John was about. John invited people to repentance, but he also coupled it with a practice, baptism. Now, for John, <laughs> baptism was, a, um, it was an outsider's ritual. Um, if you wanted to proselytize into Judaism, you would go through the ritual of, of washings and cleansings uh, that, that baptism became. And so John is ironically inviting insiders 
into an outsider's practice, which has its own little message to it. He's saying, you, the insiders, are actually acting like outsiders. You, the insiders, who are supposed to have the, the promises of God, the blessing of God, this call to, to live justly and to live in love, uh, to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan, uh, to take care of the refugee as they pass through your land, you've instead traded that for this quid pro quo, I hate to use the term, of uh, protection and security and advancement um, in, in trade for, um, you know, basically our core values. People were abandoning their values to get protection. And I think we all know that temptation. All of our, our sense of calling and value in this world is put to the test, week in and week out, especially in this city. And so John's message was, repent. Go through a ritual that connects you existentially with this reality of God's love and God's forgiveness. There's just no other way. And it's, is it, you know, it's no doubt that Jesus had the beginning of his ministry in this context, in the wilderness, in the waters of baptism. This is where the whole thing gets kicked off, because this is where Jesus encounters the love of God at the core of his being. Um, our story tells us he goes into the waters of baptism and comes out, and he has this sort of audiovisual experience, a mystical experience with God's love, where he hears a voice coming down from heaven that says, you are my child whom I love and whom I find great pleasure. And that becomes the core of Jesus' identity. And it enables him to go into the wilderness and face all these tempting voices to say, you are what you have, you are what other people say of you, you are what uh, you, know, you um, have, what people say about you, what you do. And he goes into the wilderness and says, I don't, I don't have to play that game. I know who I am. And it's that voice he comes back to again and again throughout his ministry. It's why he has to get away. Like he's with the crowds and he can feel that current that John opposes here. He can feel it sweeping him in a certain direction. He has to pull away and he has to say, I have to reconnect with this love. I have to reconnect with God. That's why prayer was so important for Jesus. That's why he invited his disciples to the practices of prayer, to create that space where we can be alone with God and know who we truly are, loved unconditionally, with all the value we need, naked before God. Jesus knew this and responded to John's message. And the crowds, they struggle. They really do struggle with John's message. And frankly, I struggle with John's message. Um, throughout my life, there have been times where I've sort of detoxed or fasted from certain things that I felt like were uh, becoming too big for my ego. You know, my, my, they were becoming things I was leaning on too heavily. Um, a few years back, I decided to uh, take a year and not buy any new clothing. I did a fashion fast. Now, I know you all are like, man, I know Michael is so into fashion, and that was so good for him. I was worried about him. Um, but I, I just knew in my soul that I was just beginning to, uh, my image and how I was able to curate my image was just becoming too important. And so I took a, a year to sort of step back and detox and try to reconnect with who am I apart from what I can create and curate through clothing. Now, it's not, that was not radical. I don't know that I laid the ax to the root with that practice, all right? But it was meaningful for me. And I think Advent invites us to consider those kinds of things, those kinds of detachments, those kinds of 
gestures at stepping back and saying, who am I apart from that? If we don't ever come to a question of going, what am I really leaning on? What, am I, uh, what is my ego really rooted in? And we don't take a step back from it, then we're not doing the work of good and healthy spirituality. And John knows that, and that's why he invites people to repent. And he invites them to uh, model his own simplicity. Here's a guy who's wearing camel's fur and uh, just kind of like carries with him everything that he needs. When the soldiers, ironically, when they ask the question, what should we do? He tells them, listen, don't extort money, etc." But then he tells them this. He says, but be satisfied. Be satisfied. And I think that's the invitation of Advent in the face of a consumer culture that's constantly creating a sense of uh, need, a sense of absence. Uh, even the method of pla planned obsolescence just keeps us wanting more uh, as our shiny gadgets sort of decline in their relevance in short periods of time. Even in that era, John would have us say, be satisfied. Learn what it means to find what really matters, what the ego should really be rooted in, which is the love of our creator and the love that we return to our creator and the love that we share with one another. The rival of that is the love of money. And the Bible doesn't condemn money. Uh, the Bible condemns the love of money. Jesus would say multiple times, you can't serve God and money. Um, you, you, you have to have one or two masters here. And there's a danger in our pursuit of uh, accumulation of wealth at all costs. Uh, one Federal Reserve chair uh, used the language of infectious greed uh, to talk about, now, I mean, it's not, uh, this isn't brain science and you're not wowed by that quote, but it, it's something that you can't eliminate greed. You can't eliminate this current by simply uh, looking at and modifying and tweaking policy. I mean, policy change from the rivers of Washington will not address the core greed issue of our society. There has to be something else. Our economy and our society have sort of accepted this as the norm. We've accepted the intrinsic merits of it. And so each of us somehow justifies uh, our lifestyle and the suffering in our world which our lifestyles either ignore or even sometimes sustain. The only sure remedy is a change of heart. And Advent takes us to that place where we eventually bow before this radical vulnerability of an infant. And we're invited to rethink everything. This is why I love Christmas. I have four children, so I'm starting to become something of a professional at this. Um, but I have, uh, I have a baby, but I also have a five-year-old. My five-year-old's at a really interesting point now where there's this, um, an innocence there, but there's also this like uh, trying on of ego protection and ego advancement, if I'll put it that way. And so it's fun to watch him sort of grow and develop. Uh, but his vulnerability draws things out of me and forces me to ask questions about my life that I may not be forced to ask uh, as regularly if I didn't have him in my life. Uh, even last night, we're watching Home Alone, you know, kicking off the holiday season strong. And uh, he, you know, there's a certain point where we're watching the movie, and at the very end, I mean, spoiler alert, it's been out for, you know, since I was 10, so uh, I'm not, sorry, not sorry. But at the very end, Kevin eventually reunites with his mother. And <laughs> there's a moment in the, in the living room where they stare at one another, and the mom says, oh, Kevin, I'm so sorry. And I look over, and 
my five-year-old has ugly cry face on. And his lip is quivering, and he hugs his mom. And I asked him later, I was like, why are you crying? Why were you crying? And he said, because I was so happy. And I just, there's moments like that, that that strike to the heart of what are we building our lives on? Like, what's at the core of that that I need to reconnect with? That I need to, to get back to the basics of what it means to be vulnerable and loved by God and not have all the armor of my achievements and all the armor of my possessions and all the armor of my reputation walking around in my day-to-day life? What if I could learn what it means at the vulnerability of a child, which is what Christmas is all about, and see love born to us, laid bare for us, and say, that is the mystery of the universe. That's the secret sauce. That vulnerable love is at the heart of everything, and that's what our egos should be rooted in. C.S. Lewis was often thinking about generosity. Uh, he was a you know, late 20th century writer. Uh, as Tyler Short says, you might have heard of him. Um, he said, basically, in reflecting on generosity, like what undercuts generosity, he said, uh, quote, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to be giving, he wrote. And he continued, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure, if our comforts, our luxuries, our amusements, etc., is up to the standard of common, uh, common among those who share the same income as our own, then we're probably giving away too little. If our charities don't pinch or hamper us, then I should say they are too small. And there ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. John looks at the crowds and he sees the way that that the ego is separated through this process of religion, ethnicity, economy. And he says, we got to find a sense of self where we see ourselves connected, where I don't see me against you, us against them. All I can see is an us. And I see this radical solidarity that I have that God's love connects me with. And when you begin to see that way, you begin to expand beyond just protecting and advancing yourself or protecting and advancing your group. You start to learn what it means to love all and to serve all and to think of the common good. Our tradition has a rich sense of what this is. The Hebrew Bible teaches us, taught us that, you know, there's this practice of a tithe, which was 10% of your income, that we should be setting aside and giving as a gesture that everything's a gift from God. And the New Testament sort of blows the doors open and invites us to this uh, boundary-crossing generosity that isn't about percentages as much as it is about living out this story of generosity we see in Jesus Christ. Where we're always asking the question, how can we give more? Lewis often said the antidote to greed is giving. If you want to be free of your, guilt, your greed, then give your money away and give it liberally. And we found this to be true in our own lives as we're pinching pennies and squeezing our budget, uh, always trying to create room to be more generous, to give to another cause, to listen to the needs that are coming into our lives and the story of our lives, and to respond to it. This is the fruit that John is looking for. That's the fruit that he says we should be asking, is this present in my life? And it's the fruit we're meant to consider during Advent. And so I'd like to close with just some practical considerations. As we think about what it means to put this stuff into practice, 
what if we could continue or consider getting in the habit of asking more questions about how we're spending our money? What if we could develop a thoughtful approach to the histories of the products and the companies uh, that we support when we purchase? What if we could enter into a process of humility and resist that sort of ego-driven thing that thinks our way of approaching money is the only one that matters or that counts? What if we could set our budget during this lead up to Christmas? We could know our limit. We could save ourselves from going into debt if that's a temptation. What if we could start buying as we start buying or maybe before we start buying? What if we could consider each person on our list? I've been doing this lately. And think about the relationship and the significance that you have and find in that relationship. And learn to connect to that rather than the machine of just getting gifts. What if you could consider your core values and whether what you're buying reflects those values? And maybe you could talk openly and early with your family. This year, we decided to, we, we've always done a more scaled down Christmas and then we do birthdays big. Um, but we do scale down Christmas because we're like, we want it to be about the story. And this year, we decided to scale it down a, a, a step further. And I think at first, you know, our kids were really somewhat disappointed. Yes? No? No. Okay. They're not going to respond. Um, but I think what we've learned over the years is that when we force ourselves to detach, we can actually, what fills our lives and what fills our imagination is what matters, which is each other in our lives and the good gifts of our lives and this story which tells us of the greatest gift of all, the love of God revealed to humanity, making it possible to lean into love ourselves. So what if we can create space as a community to do that together, to spend less, to be more reflective, and to lean into the generosity that John invited us to.